For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, learn about a local couple who are climbing mountains to raise awareness about the communication disorder called aphasia. Meet a Tucson crafter with a passion for knitting socks the real old-fashioned way. And meet Leo, a former political prisoner who was exiled from Chile 47 years ago. His story is one of hardship, healing, and hope. Those are all next on Arizona Spotlight. Estimates indicate that more people are living with aphasia than Parkinson's disease, but the condition receives far less attention. A new expedition to the Himalayan mountains called High Asia for Aphasia seeks to change this, and it has very strong local connections. Hi, I'm Dr. Fabi Hirsch-Cruz. I'm a speech-language pathologist, and I am the CEO and Director of Clinical Services at Friends of Aphasia, a local Tucson-based nonprofit. My name is Andy Ortiz. I had a stroke two and a half years ago. Um, I, I start coming to Friends of Aphasia about two years ago. My name is Greg Leonard. I am co-founder of High Asia for Aphasia. It's a local uh, nonprofit group that uh, raises awareness about aphasia. Fabi, for our listeners who have questions about what is aphasia, you're the expert. Aphasia is when someone loses the ability to Mm -hmm. use words to communicate. We usually think of that with respect to speaking, but it can also be taking other people's words in or comprehending reading, or writing. All of those can be affected. The important thing to know is that intelligence, so a person's thinking skills, are still intact. The difficulty is with communication, using words to communicate. Why is this topic something that's important to you, Greg? That gets back to the organic origin story for High Asia for Aphasia. Ten years ago, 2013, I was preparing to climb a high Himalayan mountain in India. And it took a lot of preparation, collecting gear, logistics, and most importantly, you know, preparing physically for the difficulty of the mountain climb. I started to feel as if there was something missing from the project, from the climb. And I realized that I wanted to make the climb about something larger than myself and larger than any mountain. And I decided that I wanted to find a cause. At about the same time, my wife was finishing a speech language pathology degree here at the University of Arizona. And I was learning a little bit about some of the disorders just through her. And one of them was called aphasia. My mind quickly jumped to Asia aphasia since the climb was in Asia. So I decided I wanted to learn more about aphasia. I met with the group here at University of Arizona speech language department and met with some aphasia therapy groups, I was really taken back by their determination, the folks in the group, their courage in the groups. And I thought, this is really a worthy cause. This is the right thing. And that's how it began with that partnership. And 10 years later, we are at High Asia for Aphasia Part 2. Andy, before your stroke occurred, did you have any idea of what aphasia was? 
Absolutely not. And what was the biggest challenge for you in your recovery? After my stroke, I went to Banner for my recovery and then Encompass. Not one time did I say anything about aphasia. No one said anything about that. And so at that time, I was okay, but just words are a little difficult, but not just enough to get by. And then when I went to do the first time with uh, uh, Friends of Aphasia, I was like, ah, it's okay. But then my daughter said, what the heck's aphasia? I don't know. Let's find out. And that's the only, the very first time. And even to this day, I mean, I had a couple of things with uh, some doctors doing different things like that. But even the doctors don't understand what aphasia is, believe it or not. Fabi, you've seen people from all walks of life. How common would you say Andy's experience is? Unfortunately, I would say Andy's experience is very common. Aphasia, although it's very prevalent in the U.S., over 2 million people living with aphasia, most people still don't know what the word is and what it means. So to come out of a medical experience with aphasia and have not heard the word, and plus it's complicated by communication in general, that if you can't understand what people are saying to you, it's easy to, to miss things even when they are explained. And so as a profession, we all need to be working to provide information in a lot of different ways to make sure people understand, especially when they're living with aphasia. So let's get back to the idea of the expedition. How is it going to help the mission of promoting awareness and uh, how is it going to help people with aphasia? Yeah, we are going to climb. When I say we, it's myself and my wife, Barbara Leonard. We'll be climbing two mountains in the Indian Himalaya. Our aphasia awareness campaigns are centered on those mountain climbs. We have two banners that we will be bringing with us to each of the two summits. Those were signed by members of the aphasia therapy group. And we'll be carrying those to the summits. And what I really like is this analogy between the struggles that we experience as mountain climbers trying to reach high altitude summits. We are grasping for air as we get higher and higher. Folks that have aphasia are often grasping to communicate, grasping for words, grasping for concepts to communicate with others. And as climbers, we acclimate. We have strategies to acclimate to ever-increasing altitudes. And folks with aphasia can also acclimate. They learn strategies in therapy to help them to deal and cope with aphasia. That's the, where the two projects come together. I love the analogy. There's so many things that I can see being analogous with the struggles of mountain climbing and the daily struggles of somebody living with aphasia always working hard, always trying to achieve more and more. And so I think that persistence that Greg and Barbara are demonstrating on climbing to these high peaks is something that we very much see in our aphasia groups, people being so persistent, so determined. And that's what it takes to really maximize recovery and really gain communication back to where people are really engaging again in their lives. 
Andy, can you share a strategy that has been effective for you? Back in the day, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was, uh, darn it. Um, I was a salesman, you know, anything I can blah, 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 blah. And then I had aphasia and it just, I, I shut down. I can't do any. And so then little by little, I kind of started doing, well, I can do it a little bit, but it's still, it's still not the same. It's not quite the same, but I'm, I'm doing a lot now. I can do everything. Um, the other day I go walk with my dog at Reed park and I'm, I'm unfortunately my, he's a husky and everybody just love him. And so, Oh, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's happy. Then I go up and say, Hey, do you know what aphasia is? 99% doesn't know what aphasia is. So I start talking to people and, and then I have my little sign and sometimes I have my t-shirt. And so just, just a little thing that maybe nobody even does it, but just that one time to say aphasia. Oh, I have my sister, my daughter, my brother. Wow. Then, Hey, well we can go. And so now we have cars to say, Hey, we, here, here's our name. Here's our number. Go, go check them out and see what's going on. So. All the better for it. I love it. I'd like to know more from Greg about the preparations that you have to make. What are the most mission-critical pieces of equipment that you and Barbara will be taking with you? These are technical climbs, and that means we do need specialized equipment. So that includes ice axes, crampons, which are the spiky footwear that we attach to our mountaineering boots. And this is to have good purchase in the ice and snow as we climb higher and, and slopes get steeper. Of course, there's ropes. We're always attached to ropes. And uh, I think the most mission critical aspect of alpine climbing is simply to stay healthy, to not get sick and to not hurt, hurt yourself, have an injury. And so the equipment, of course, is there to, to help with that. And staying healthy, eating properly, and uh, it's probably the most important part of mountain climbing. What kind of altitudes are we talking about? The first mountain is called Kangyatsi 1, and that's at 21,000 feet, right on the button. The second mountain is called Satopenth, and that is at 23,213 feet. It would be just a slightly bit lower than the highest I have been. Mm -hmm. um, this would be record territory for Barbara. So we're both excited, and every mountain is different. Although they might be lower just by a little bit, they're very technical. And so we have to not only have the right equipment, but we have to have the years of experience to know how to make good decisions in the mountains. There are things that we can't control, such as the weather, the condition of the snow on well, the slopes. That was one of my next questions is what kind of temperature range do you, are you expecting? Uh, it can be quite a wide range. There are days even at high altitude above 18,000 feet where you can almost be in a t-shirt on a nice sunny day. And then there can be winter storms, winter type storms that blow in and we can suddenly be in, you know, minus 20 degrees with wind chill factors. So we have to have the proper gear to handle all those, that range of conditions. Well, what's the itinerary for the trip, Greg? We depart in early August and the first part of the trip is almost all of August on Kangyatsi 1. And I do want to mention that part of climbing is the acclimatization. So each day we're trekking to higher and higher altitudes. And then when we reach key altitudes, like 14,000 feet, 18,000 feet, 20,000 feet, we spend an extra day or two at those altitudes to allow our body the time to acclimate. Um, Kanyatsi 1 will be in August, and Satopanth Mountain will be 
through most of September. Greg, is there going to be a way for the public to follow your progress, to like be aware of what's going on while you're in India? I have a High Asia for Aphasia website, highasiaforaphasia.com, and there are lots of details about the climb and the expedition. I also have a High Asia for Aphasia Facebook page. It is there where I'll be attempting to post, hopefully on a daily basis, uh, the progress of the expeditions. So I hope folks uh, look to those sites and they can try to follow along with, with the expedition. We have links to High Asia for Aphasia and the Friends of Aphasia on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. We will provide an update on Greg and Barbara's Himalayan expedition when it's possible. Generally, we tend to think very little about socks, but not so for Barbara Schroeder, a crafter in Tucson who learned how to make socks the real old-fashioned way, using a 130-year-old machine called the hand-cranked knitter and sock machine, an American invention used mostly from 1813 until the early 1990s. Next, we'll visit Barbara Schroeder in her Tucson home in this story produced by Uslam Uzger. My first pair of socks took me six months. When I finally got that pair of socks done, I was the proudest person in the world. I now make a pair in an hour and a half. Every sock I look at and I like, they make me happy. My name is Barbara Schroeder. I've had like many lives. Right before I came to Tucson, I wove and I was living in Minnesota and I was at the Weaver's Guild in Minneapolis and someone brought in a pair of these perfectly made socks. Somebody else says, these are store-bought. You can't sell this at our bazaar thing. And somebody says, no, they were made on an antique sock machine. And my ears perked up and I thought, wow. Went online and I saw them. Well, then I also saw that you can't find them. Once they electrified the factory, they would melt them down. So not that many of the old machines are left. I joined a Yahoo sock cranking group that was worldwide. It's almost like a cult. I found a woman in New Zealand that had machines for sale. Then she promised they worked. So that's where I got my first machine, which is out in the living room. The old machines, like the one in front of you, are 1830s. The man who invented the flatbed knitting machine turned his flatbed round and made a circular sock machine. This one doesn't make the same clicking noise, but they make a little clicking noise. You can hear it, you know. Um, I think we just messed up that sock, but that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Anyway, I can fix it. Somebody worked on this machine to make, well, how much money would you make in 1850? And young girls, I assume you'd be like 12, 13-year-old girls could have been in there, to even older women were bringing home their 25 cents from working all day long making socks. They left sort of a mark on the machines to me. I can trace my heritage like back to Ireland. There could have been girls in my family that worked in these machines. The old machines carry that sense of a person, which it has heart to me. Everybody can pull out a drawer and there's a bunch of socks in there. But if you're somewhere in the trenches or, or overseas fighting, socks become a critical issue. During World War I, the soldiers were fighting in France in the trenches. 
but a lot of them only had one pair of socks. They got wet and yucky, and they had what was called trench foot. They put out a call for women to make socks. The factories sent machines to the front, and with it would come a person who could teach the kids who were walking wounded, I guess is what you'd say, how to make socks for the other guys. It was a massive effort. I don't look at myself so much as anything other than a factory worker. So Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays are women's socks. On Thursdays and Fridays, I do men. So I go to my little piece of paper and said, oh, I need men's extra large. That gives me a balance through the week. Every machine I have is set to something. They make a different thing with a different amount of tension is needed. So that's why I have so many machines. That and I'm sort of addicted to them. It just is very calming to me. In the mornings on Mondays, I will go and get all the yarn I'm going to want for the week. And I will wind the cones up. Then I would sit down and I, you know, I do clean my house. It doesn't look like it, but I do periodically clean my house. By afternoon, I'm cranking socks. By Thursday, I'm washing socks. Every day is kind of the same thing. There's different routines, but that's kind of what the day is like. I am a bit of a hermit. I tend to be a little compulsive, which is maybe why this works. I also need to make things. You're born that way, okay? It's, it's how you're put together. I was the one who would make somebody a candle out of crayons that would melt all over the table when you lit it. I come from a generation where my parents and grandparents saved balls of string. Today, people would just throw it away. So I use every bit. I don't have big challenges. I think that's part of the reason why I like doing it. It's sort of not quite mindless, but it's just therapeutic. I walk in here and I'm happy. I overbuy, there's no getting around it. People say, what happens? You know, you're 73 years old, you've got quite a bit of yarn. If I quit selling at the market, I'm gonna make socks for homeless people. Everybody deserves good socks. That story was produced by Uslam Uzger for Arizona Illustrated on PBS6. You can see the story you just heard on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Our region is home to thousands of refugees. Many arrive here following imprisonment, torture, and traumatic dislocation. There's a group called Owl and Panther that helps to provide refugees of all ages with healing experiences and a welcoming community. Next, we'll hear the story of Leo, who's been an American resident for 47 years. He was exiled from his home country of Chile during the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. His experience was harrowing, a story of imprisonment and torture, but then finding a new life and new love. Throughout it all, Leo's hopes for his family and his nation to heal from this dark chapter in history have never wavered. His perseverance was recently rewarded when official recognition was made of one of the secret detention centers used by the Pinochet government, the same one where Leo was held and tortured before he was exiled. We have a big new happening in our life, myself and my city. 
after being obscured for 40 years, this uh, detention and torture center, a group of students who are doing a doctorate degree, they decide to do an investigation of why what happened there, because for some people say that was a torture center, for other people say, we don't know, it was attached to the church, that, that location. So it, it was strange that apparently for a lot of people was sort of like a boarding room for a student to come to study in the city of Antofagasta. That was the original design for that attachment. In 1975, they opened that, they opened that center to detention center secretly. Became a secret detention center it in 1975. A secret detention center during the military government of, of Pinochet. People like me, you know, uh, we were fighting the government. Uh, we were arrested either in the street or either in the house. Right after I got arrested, I'm talking of myself, they put a bandage in my face. A blindfold, perhaps? Blindfold. Uh-huh. And I didn't realize where they were taking me. You know, it was secret the whole time. I hear um, they open a gate. So I was detained there with a group of other people for, I think there were about 12 people there mm-hmm. in a room. Everybody by phone. And when the minute I moved to look what's going on, there was a police lady, woman, standing right next to me and kicked my knee and said, don't do that again. Mm-hmm. So after that, I was tortured in a, in a secret chamber in the bottom. And I got released. I was exiled, kicked in exile into the United States. You were exiled to the exiled. United States. I'm sorry to ask you this, Leo, but mm-hmm. what were they torturing you for? What did they okay. want from you? Well, what happened is um, the new government, they have a policy of terrorizing and by terrorizing the, the population, they were implementing a new capitalist system, let's put it that way, called neoliberalism. Neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, which is privatized everything that was achieved during the socialist government of Allende. And, but they went even further, because not only social security, health, school, to name few housing, they privatized rivers. And my brother was involved clandestine, and of course I didn't know until one day he said, you know what, uh, I feel that like uh, they are stepping behind me, I need to get out of here. And, and I say, well, can I replace you? They, they know you, but they don't know me. He said, you know what I get into? This is not a good idea. He, he gave me a big trip on how dangerous to be involved in the uh, so-called resistance. Yes. So he said, I'll give you a contact, and he left. I was assigned to create a bulletin made it with a silk screen. Silk screen, right. I yeah. still have some of those. Anyway, and passing. Passing out this information yeah. to people. Yeah. But leaving it under, under houses, in, in, the, in, in parks, yeah. places like that. Right, so, you didn't want to get caught distributing exactly, that information. Exactly. Right. And, and, and it happened, you know, I got, I got arrested, and I was taken to the center. Following about two weeks of mistreatment in the detention camp, 
Leo was sent to another camp to await deportation. Next, he recounts a last-ditch attempt to break him by threatening him with death. I was taken to a um, railroad right by the, uh, behind the church. And the guy said, you have the last opportunity here. Either, either you tell me or a train is coming in 10 minutes or a bullet in your head. You have three choices. But he said one word that, that it hit me badly in my head. It was confess. I don't have to confess, I said. And, and just feel that the bullet coming any time. And he hit me with the, with the gun in my head. Following months more of detention, Leo was sent away and finally arrived in the United States. Now here's a short essay that Leo wrote. In 1976, a few months after arriving in the United States, I called an uncle in the city of Antofagasta, Chile. He was surprised and happy to hear me, but scared that our conversation might be recorded by the secret police of the Pinochet government. He told me not to call again, but he suggested I arrange future family calls between public phones to be safe. After letters back and forth, my family and I arranged a day and time, and I went to the telephone booth at my trailer park where I was living. I deposited $5 in coins. A long-distance operator came on the line saying she was unable to connect with the booth in my town. She said, hang up the phone and try it again later. I didn't understand her English. She repeated several times, hang up the phone. Then silence in her side and silence in my side. She finally realized I didn't understand her and waited. I was holding the telephone in desperation as I held the last core connecting with my family and my country. The voice came again repeating, hang up the phone. I looked around the parking area for someone to help me. The whole time I thought, I'm not letting go. Months before, while the secret police took me to the airport to expel me, the car stopped at the red light. I looked through the window at the faces of young family preparing to cross the street. They didn't see me. They didn't know the secret police were expelling everyone like me who opposed the military government. The young family was in one world and I was in another. Standing in front of the phone booth in Tucson, I felt the same unforgettable solitude. For years, I struggled to embrace my new home. People frequently asked me, why you haven't become a US citizen? But that would have been like hanging up the phone. Slowly, the feeling of nostalgia and exile recedes as I become used to living in these two realities. 
After 47 years, my connection with Chile doesn't depend on the fragility of a telephone line, but the love of my families and friends and the struggle of a new generation for a better life. Thank you to Leo for sharing his story. We have more stories from Alan Panther on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. You can find the organization directly at owlandpanther.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.